This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. This week, we're featuring some of our favorite interviews of the year. And today, we listen back to my conversation with musician Tariq Trotter, co-founder of the Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots. He was our guest when his memoir was published. It's called The Upcycled Self, a memoir on the art of becoming who we are. In it, he talks about his life and how, as he remembers it, it started with a fire. He was six years old, deep in play with his army men, those popular plastic figurines from the 70s, when he decided to flick a lighter to add drama to the war scene. When the tip of the lighter got too hot for Tariq's little fingers, he reactively tossed it, the curtains and carpet erupting in flames before engulfing the entire house. Trotter examines the shame of that moment, as well as other harrowing events growing up in Philadelphia, intertwined with joyful moments, like discovering music and meeting his fellow bandmate Amir Questlove Thompson. Known by his stage name, Black Thought, Trotter is the lead MC of The Roots, which he and Thompson founded as teens in high school. The group now serves as the house band on NBC's The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. Here is one of The Roots' first hits from their early album, Things Fall Apart. It's You Got Me, featuring Erica Badu. Tariq Trotter, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thanks for having me. This memoir is about you going back through your life to understand who you are. And that fire that you accidentally started at six years old, you write that it became the basis of all that you are. But to say that it changed you isn't quite right. It actually shaped the person that you are. What did it shape you into? Um, I think, you know, the fire and that whole experience at such a young age, um, it changed me in that it jump-started. Um, it was the beginning of me having to uh, to grow up, uh, you know, fast. Um, yeah, and, you know, when I, you know, go back in, in, in my life and I, Trace through, uh, you know, like the, those those watershed moments, and um, I think you know, as a kid, I mean, you know, I was I was six years old, so there was no way at six for me to really understand the gravity, you know what I mean, of 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 it all, um, and how that's the sort of thing that could carry through through life, you know. 
At the time, you were living with your mother and your half-brother in a house that your mom had done this amazing job making a home um, in North Philadelphia. She did not blame you or scold you, but it was clear that it had changed your family's life. There was very much a before the fire and an after the fire for your family. How, in those immediate days and weeks and and really um, years, did things change for you all? It really destabilized you. Yeah, it definitely, um, it was the beginning of just a more unstable uh, period in, in, in our lives. One of the things that, a revelation that 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 occurred post-fire, like right after the fire, was just the fact that, I, you know, I didn't get in trouble. There was no doubt in my mind that I was, you know, going to get it. You know what I mean? I knew that I had really done it this time. And uh, you know, I was expecting, you know, some, if not multiple uh, manners of, of punishment, right? And, um, you know, there, there wasn't really a reprimand. Like, you know, my mom, I mean, obviously now as an adult and as a parent, you, you completely understand that, uh the only concern would be uh, for your your kid's safety. But in that moment, I felt like, wow, you know, she's she's let me slide with this one. But, um, you know, I think I came to, uh, like, the revelation was um, the amount of, of grace, you know what I'm saying, that my that my mother was able to show um, in those moments, right, you know, uh, that, that felt as, as if uh, such a display would, would, would be impossible. You talk about how much you had to grow up after that fire, you got your first job at seven years old. Yeah, yeah, I did. Seven years old, I um was working uh, at a, at an eyeglass uh, for for an optician because I started wearing glasses at around uh, at the age of six or so. And this place, this uh this optician was uh, along the route, my route to and from school. Um, which, uh, you know, often I would be traveling uh, alone or with, you know, another young five or six year old um kid it and, really uh, speaks yeah. to the time because it, it <laughs> like, really does it yeah. does you know because we would just be out there back in the day your parents would go to work and just you know go to school i hope you make it you know what I'm uh my trek to school it was a it was a couple mile walk and you know this was you know the winters in in the, in the 70s and, and early 80s when it was the real deal you know super cold out and but yeah anyway this guy this optician uh where I would often stop to ask him uh, if he could repair my glasses before um I got home from school um I think he just you know sort of felt the vibe he like he read the the room of sorts and was you know he he realized that I was a, a latchkey kid who was often you know headed home from school to an empty house mm-hmm. and uh he provided um, you know, an alternative and uh, saying, hey, would you would you accept these responsibilities? And would it be OK if I talk to your mom and, you know, figure something out? And he spoke with my mom and, and she was with it. I, I had a job. You write about these times um, so vividly. And you also write about some heavy things that allow us to understand and see you more clearly. In addition to the fire that forever changed you you also lost both of your parents at a very young age your father was murdered when you were a baby and your mother was murdered when you were a teenager in a very brutal way yes. i'm guessing for a very long time you did not lead with this part of your life did Absolutely. people in the entertainment circles and around you know these things about you um i mean you know my closest friends definitely uh you know know 
uh, about my my history and you know what my life has sort of been like. But no, I think um, I'm I'm guarded in that way. I'm such a private person that it's almost as if you if you weren't there at the time, there's no way that you uh, you know you, you'd have any idea. I've never worn my uh, lived experience as that sort of uh, badge, you know, or on my sleeve in that way. What do you um, think that's about holding it so close to you? You know, I think it's um, it's one of those last bastions of um, you know, of self, right? I, I think as artists, there's a dance, there's a negotiation that takes place, and you know, we're this, we give so much of ourselves, and that's what becoming an artist and embracing the arts is about it's about you know giving more of yourself not that i've never intended to become more personal and more vulnerable and accessible as an artist but it's the sort of thing that i was holding on to for the right moment you know what i mean for when it, it made the most sense um and that's right now you didn't find out right away that your mother had been murdered um, no. You had been living in Detroit and with relatives. You were a teenager, and you'd come back to Philly, mm-hmm. and you couldn't find her. And so you went out to search for her, and one of the places you went to after calling and driving around was the morgue. Yep. And that's where you found her. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, not me personally, but um, that's where our family found her. And it was, um, you know, one of the sad you know, just realities of life, um, you know, in Philadelphia. And at the time that, you know, I was you know, growing up in Philadelphia, I mean, you know, just in the middle of the 80s crack epidemic and then, you know, immediately after, um, you know, just the, the crack epidemic and everything that, that took place. Um, yeah, you know, we had normalized lots of, of trauma and lots of, uh, you know, things that, you know, we had gotten used to seeing and experiencing every day. Um, you know, it just wasn't necessarily okay and wasn't necessarily normal. And, you know, one of the normal things for us was that, you know, that's what you do. If, uh, you know, someone doesn't show back up home at the end of the night or the next morning or you're trying to track somebody down, first you check the hospitals, you know, see if... You know, maybe they've gotten hurt and wound up in the hospital. Then you check, uh, you know, the jails, see if they have been arrested, and then you check the morgues. And we, in that order, that's what we always did. And that was the process. And then uh, my mother, you know, she would always turn up after a couple days. And uh, this particular time, I think it was something that we all felt, you know, just an eerie feeling. It felt different. And um, once we had found out that there was um, a Jane Doe that had turned up, like an unidentified or or unidentifiable um, body, I think we all knew that um, or felt that that was uh, my mother. And then my my grandmother and her sister went and uh, and confirmed at the morgue. When you found out your mother was killed, you were in high school, and you had this good friend, Amir Questlove Thompson. What did that friendship mean to you through that time period? Um, through that time period, uh, you know, Amir and my friendship was uh, was huge. It was um, an anchor for me. You know, you know, the ways in which he and his family were were there for me. They really had taken me in. We are the dynamic was already one uh, in which I would spend days, weeks at his at a time at his place, and and vice versa. You know, um, we were inseparable in that way as creatives. 
But um, the fact that I was able to pour myself completely into my art and um, that the music was there for me when I needed it to be and, you know, just that Amir and his family was there for me. Um, it was huge. It was just the perfect, you know, safety net to sort of keep me on the right trajectory because I was very much at a crossroads and um, I could have processed that trauma and the experience and the loss in a different way and, you know, just been you know, at a very different place today. The Roots was also one of the first rap groups to play live music. There are so many elements of jazz. Was it hard for you guys in the beginning? Did record companies know what to do with you? Yeah, no, record companies had no idea what to do with uh, with the Roots. So, yeah, we looked different. We sounded you know, different. You know, I spoke and performed differently. Both uh, Malik and I, uh, the other MC, you know, rest in peace, Malik B., the other MC in the Roots, yeah. um, you know, spoke differently than, um, you know, folks did uh, from places that were, you know, trending more um, in the culture. Like, you know, there was a specific way that rappers in the West Coast or from the South or even from New York, you know, said things. And uh, from Philly, we just, we sounded different. There was no, uh, there, there wasn't, Philly wasn't the, the incubator for us that it's been for some other artists um, at different points in time. When I look at you guys, I mean, you're not just a band. You're, you're like a collective. Um, Absolutely, we are. Yeah, I mean, so in any given iteration, there are almost like a dozen members, but but there there's also all of these other connective tissues around Philadelphia of other artists that you all introduced us to. So you oh, yeah. you all basically set that that foundation that culture that we know of of like this Philly sound of neo soul hip hop. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, it began with just jam sessions that we would have um, at Amir's house and or at, you know, our, our manager, again, rest in peace, uh, Rich Nichols at, at Rich's place. And we wound up arriving at a residency at a place called the Wetlands here in New York City. And then after doing the, the Wetlands for a while, it became so, you know, testosterone-fueled f- and it was just so male energy dominant that... Um, we we wanted to create another platform just to give uh you know female energy and you know just to give that you know the feminine a place mm. to uh you know to to showcase and 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 perform and that's from that uh the black lily was born and then that that's really the the beginning of the black lily um was uh you know it ushered in an era can you I mean, describe Adam a, bla- a black is, lily yeah what what that yeah, is yeah well you know um a black lily uh was the answer to the initial, like the original Roots jam session where um, it's lots of uh, improv. It's almost all, you know, think of uh, like an upright citizens brigade or something for, uh, you know, but that is for the comedian, right? For the sketch comedian having to, uh, you know, just to learn to improvise and create um, and entertain on the spot. Um, that's what the Black Lily was. It was a, it was an incubator for artists like the the Jill Scotts and uh, Kindred family souls um, mm-hmm. and music soul childs and Bilal's, um, you know, of the world. Your rap cadence, um, it's always been instrumental, if that makes sense. MCs before you, they had like a, maybe like a louder, bombastic kind of projection. And you're mm-hmm. much more melodic. How did you come into your style? Did you... Did you ever emulate some of those earlier 
guys. You you talked about Cool Modi when you were really young, but yeah, 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 I did. Um, I've, I've definitely emulated, um, you know, all 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 the greats. You know, if we're talking cadence, then it began it began with the uh, you know Melly Mel, right? And the way that you know the Melly Mel's of the world sort of spoke. There was a a, a cadence that was it was almost you know like your uncle at the barbecue. <laughs> right. Um, you know, really accessible, easy to, to follow along. Um, but even in that, you know, Melly Mel was the first artist to, um, you know, he rapped. His cadence was very different from like, say, OK, we begin with the Sugar Hill Gang. Right. The way that, mm-hmm. you know, the hip, the hop, the hipper to the hipper, the hip, hip, the hop. You almost got a smile to rap in that cadence. Right. And Melly Mel came out and he was, you know, talking about the Bronx and rapping about what was, you know, really going on. Um, on songs like, you know, The Message, and he was um, emphatic in his uh, expression, you know what I mean? Broken glass everywhere, and you could, it was visual, you know what I mean? The way that, the emphasis he put on his words made it possible for you to to see what um, what he was talking about. And then you had the, uh, you know, Run DMC and those guys came along, mm-hmm. right? You know, through, I guess the connective tissue would be Curtis Blow, right, who was, you know, the first... Sex symbol, solo rap star. But, you know, again, he um, didn't rap in the way that, you know, the Melly Mel's or the Sugar Hill Gang did. And uh, he introduced us to Run as his DJ, DJ Run. And then when Run DMC came out, they were almost the antithesis to everything that was happening on the scene before them. I feel like that's what Def Jam and, you know, the people who were associated with Def Jam and, and Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin at that time, they all were yelling and screaming. They came out and it was like, we're not going to rap the way these other guys rap. Like it was Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, uh, uh, you know, even you know, Tila Rock, LL Cool J, Run DMC, who they weren't Def Jam artists, but they were part of that movement. Yeah. Um, and then you had artists like, uh, you know, Rakim and Big Daddy Kane and Cool G Rap who came out. And for them, it was more, it was about more nuance. And in particular, um, I think that's, you know, it, it goes for Rakim, who, you know, many of us like uh, uh, Talu Kweli, Yasin Bey, Nas, um, myself. Um, There's it's, it's a long list of us who sort of trace it back to, you know, to him. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, to, to the influence of, of, uh, of Rakim. He was one of the first MCs who said, I know everyone else is screaming and yelling to get their points across. Everyone else is going to be super emphatic. I'm going to articulate my my instrument as such. I'm going to use my voice like an instrument. And um, you know, he he had a, a jazz background. I think uh, Rakim, you know, grew up playing uh, you know, trumpet or sax, and his brother also um, was a jazz musician. His his, his older brother, and um, he approached his his cadence and his storytelling and his songwriting from that perspective and i think that was you know some of the earliest signs of that and that's what you know it's a tool that um i still uh you know employ today well to give an example of of your instrument how you use it i want to play one of your more recent songs which is a a personal track about your life and family and it it is called fuel let's listen to a little bit i'm in Ernest Hemingway portrait painted by Ernie Barnes. Clean sneakers and dirty horns. Last soldier of 30 gone. Who lost hope but still journeyed on. Yet I'm the reason we gon' have to get the gurney form. Karma police carrying customized cuffs for me. I hope these taped up guns are still bust for me. I had the whole world that wasn't enough for me. It got me feeling like the Lord lost trust for me. I made a means to an end when there were no wins. I burned bridges. 
Judges, I sworn to be eternal friends. The last ones I ever intended to turn against. Until we go our separate ways like fraternal twins. So to the chosen few with whom I need to reconcile. My mother's mother, my only brother, my second child. I've always loved you, although that was rarely said aloud. So take forever, I guess better late than never proud. That was Fuel by Tariq Trotter, also known as Black Thought, the co-founder of the rap group The Roots. He's written a new memoir titled The Upcycled Self. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Identify with the dead or the living, I don't know. Maybe my people set up to fall like a domino. America the beautiful, go ask Geronimo. What's the worst they could do to you? I bet my mama know. I bet my father know your honor, throw the book at us. Even if justice wasn't blind, she'd never look at us. I want that clutch of what I could not touch. I was trying to get what I could get. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Let's get back to one of our favorite interviews from 2023, my interview with Tariq Trotter, Grammy Award-winning rapper and performer, also known as Black Thought. We talked about his new memoir, The Upcycled Self, a memoir on the art of becoming who we are. Trotter is the lead MC of The Roots, which he and Amir Questlove Thompson founded after meeting as teens in high school. The group has won three Grammy Awards and is known as one of the top rap groups of all time. The Roots serve as the house band on NBC's The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. In addition to his music, Trotter is also a theater actor and writer, performing in the 2022 off-Broadway play Black No More. What's your writing process? Are you putting your rhymes to paper from the start, or does it just start with an idea and a freestyle? Um, You know, the process is different from song to song. Um, I'm constantly jotting down ideas, um, a word here, um, you know, a couplet there. But, um, yeah, for, for the most part, you know, my the writing process is, um, yeah, you know, I sit down and I try and think of, uh, you know, just different ways to either add on to or to, you know, 
continue to articulate the uh, just my origin story. You know, um, sometimes I'll I'll get the, I'll hear a, a bit of music, and I'll sit with the music for uh, for days, weeks, months at a time um, before some lyrics will come. Write a song will eventually write itself after the twenty, thirty, fortieth time that I've decided to sit and listen to this um, this idea, and then other mm-hmm. times, um, you know, I'll get thirty two, forty, you know, fifty bars will just come uh, without any sort of uh, musical inspiration. Then I have to find, you know, a, a, a fitting composition, you know, the best place for for these words to sort of live. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm just, I'm pulling my ideas out of the ether, uh, you know, I'm, and I try and just remain dialed in, tapped in, attentive, um, alert, aware, conscious enough to... Um, you know, to receive that inspiration and to recognize it when it comes, because it's all around you. So everything is a song, right? You know, so um, it's just about you know recognizing the gold. You and Quest Love, I mean, you guys have been thick as thieves since high school, but you yeah. do tell this one story of a fight that you guys had that sort yeah. of changed your relationship. You've always been thick as thieves, but it sort of put like a little something on the relationship. It did. It did. You know, um, yeah, you know, we had a brief sort of a, a, a scuffle, kerfluffle, you know, a little 30 second altercation um, when we were young. And, uh, you know, but we were already... just starting out. Yeah, yeah you we were young. Were like we were just starting out. We were, you know, uh, displaced living in uh, in London. And um, yeah, there was there was just lots of uh, of angst and anxiety associated with all the you know all the energy associated with um, you know anyone's first time putting out a, you know, a record you know a new record deal and just the unknown all of the unknown that was associated with that. So um, yeah, you know, just a perfect storm of events. You know, it led to us coming to blows you know, right quick, and it was the sort of thing that um, you know it was over. I've given you know I've forgotten about it before we left the place that you know that had taken place. But I I, I think it's the sort of thing that um, yeah, it, it stuck with him in in a different way. You know, um, does he hold? Is is it a grudge that he's held? I don't think so. But I definitely don't think it's something that he uh, you know has ever forgotten. You know what I mean? Well, he um, said it, to you, like, he's over it. But, and when yeah. you say you had a scuffle, you guys literally had a little bit of a physical altercation. And, yeah, um, yeah. he, but, but you've also seen him have like these deep connective relationships with other MCs in the way that you all had. That there's a little bit, a little part of you that feels like, was it because of that fight that like we aren't as connected as now he's connected to other people? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, there's a bit, you know what I'm saying? When someone is one of your closest friends, is someone who you, you know, you feel, uh, you know, is a brother, is a friend, is a comrade, is a collaborator. When there's that many levels to one's connection with someone or to someone, um, yeah, you know, we can, you, you can get, uh, you know, possessive. Uh, you know, selfish, jealous, like all of those are, are real feelings and um, it, it are valid, you know? So, yeah, there, there's been times, there are times when I feel all, all of that sort of thing. Well, Questlove has actually said that Jimmy Fallon is kind of responsible for rekindling your friendship because he says that when you all were offered the opportunity to be the house band for the show, you guys had kind of lost the magic of your friendship. This is like the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. Is that how you remember it? 
Um, I don't remember us as having lost the magic um, as much as, uh, you know, we were getting tired. I definitely re- recall that. I think, um, you know, at the point at which, you know, we met Jimmy, we we had hit a stride of, you know, consistently 200-plus shows uh, per year and all around the world and you know, just lots of traveling. And we just started to make a little bit of money, but there was also um, lots of uncertainty associated with just that period, right? Um, there was a bit of a hamster wheel feeling, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. a, you know, Groundhog Day of it all. Um, you know, what could we do differently? You know, how long uh, would we be able to sort of keep up at this or at that pace? Yeah, you know, th- those were all questions that I, I recall posing to uh, to myself and you know, and to to uh, to Rich and in, in, in Amir. Um, but yeah, you know, the fact that once we started doing the uh, at the, at the time, with, what was uh, late night with Jimmy Fallon. Um, you know, just having to spend time together every day in some way, shape, or form, and being on stage together every day, um, it was different, and it was uh, it brought us together uh, in a different way than than touring had. Because we reached a point in our career where we could afford separate tour buses, separate you know dressing rooms, and stuff like that. And I, though I think you know that definitely contributed to. Uh, it's part of what, you know, contributes uh, to our longevity, right? If you ask him today, he'll say, oh, separate tour buses. That's why, you know, the roots is, is still mm-hmm. here. But, um, yeah, so I think there's, uh, you know, a gift in that, in that, uh, you know, ability to sort of spread out a little bit. There is a, separate, there's a, yeah. a, a gift to and a curse that lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, you know. You're an old hat now at the Tonight Show gig, but did it take you a moment to to like get into it's almost like it's a regular job that you have to be at every day and when you're mm-hmm. touring when you're a musician it's you're you kind of have an entirely different life where you're on the road but you've got to be there every single day basically or yeah. every day of taping yeah five days a week we're there and um you know yeah it took some getting used to um it's just sort of you know it was it was like a giving up our touring schedule and like trading it for this uh you know the shooting schedule there um but you know the body and the mind just still you know having that desire to to you know to go right <laughs> to to travel mm-hmm. um so yeah it took a while to just get used to you know the 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 routineness of it all um but again you know you talk about you know gifts and I think there's more upside to us having this regular, like this nine to five, this day, quote unquote, day job, um, if you will, than uh, than downside to it. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm able to spend more time with my family. You know, I come home to my to my kids every night, and you know, get to see my wife more. Um, Yeah, in the roots, um, we just the the depth of our connection as as musicians as performers as as brothers and again just as comrades um i think is uh is unmatched and there's so much like i've always wanted to have that thing with uh you know with the group with the crew with the gang a band where we're able to communicate um without words right there's so much that's just unspoken like uh, and it's uh 
it's um it's a luxury to have someone that uh that understands uh what it is that you're trying to articulate without it having to be uh to be said and um Amir and I have that um you know Kamal and I have that um it's a bond that uh, that I'm able to enjoy with uh or experience you know with uh, with uh, with members of the roots and uh I appreciate it you know what I mean something that I cherish Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Tariq Trotter, also known as Black Thought, co-founder of the Grammy Award-winning group The Roots. He's written a new memoir about his life called The Upcycled Self. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy explains how Betterment's technology helps investors better understand and save on taxes. So taxes are a real cost of investing, as are fees. Understanding your after-tax, after-fee returns is really what's important for investors. An example would be when you buy and sell uh, securities frequently, you can pay a lot of taxes because short-term capital gains, meaning I bought it and I sold it fairly quickly, have higher taxes than long-term capital gains. Our technology in particular will tell you what the tax implication of a particular move you'd like to make is going to be before you make that move so that you're making it with full transparency. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. This is Fresh Air, and today we're talking to Grammy Award-winning rapper and performer Black Thought, also known as Tariq Trotter, about his new memoir, The Upcycled Self, a memoir on the art of becoming who we are. Trotter is the lead MC of The Roots, which he and Amir Questlove Thompson founded after meeting as teens in high school. The group serves as the house band on NBC's The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. In addition to his music, Trotter is also a theater actor and writer, having performed in the off-Broadway play Black No More. I read somewhere that older hip-hop artists are, right in this moment, getting more work than younger rap artists these days. I think that's pretty interesting. Maybe it's because we're nostalgic and we're in the 50th year of hip-hop and like we, we want to see shows that really speak to yep. that. The people with the money are middle-aged and they're going to these shows. Yep. But I'm really curious about your assessment of the music today. One thing that, one p- kind of music that it seems like every time it comes up, people have polarizing thoughts about is drill music, um, mm-hmm. which for those who don't know drill music is kind of this subgenre of hip-hop out of Chicago that's really popular. What is your assessment of the music today, the hip-hop world and music today? It continues to grow. I think there's more variety out there, uh, you know, musically um, than ever, right? So um, you talk about, you know, subgenres and, you know, the drill musics and then, you know, subgenres that those subgenres sort of spawn. And I I think there's space for um, it all to exist. I mean, I think, you know, there's lots of rappers, there's MCs. I think a rapper and an MC are two different things. But again, I think there's space for both to exist. Uh, and how so? Culture. Can you describe the distinction? I mean, I think, you know, in, in brief, I think an MC is, you know, more concerned uh, with acknowledgement of the foundation and that from which it came. An MC is more concerned with something cultural, with hip-hop as a movement, as opposed to, 
you know, something more surface. I think a rapper raps and MC, you know, has been bestowed with and, you know, has accepted the the responsibility and the honor that comes with, you know, becoming a griot or a bard of sorts, right? Um, a truth teller, one of the people who, you know, it's your job to let us know what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Um, an MC, that's what it, an MC lets you know what time it is. You know what I'm saying? And a rapper raps. You know what I'm saying? There's some MCs who rap and there's, you know, some rappers who rap just as well as MCs. But yeah, I think there is a, you know, there's, there's a, a distinct difference. How do your kids view your music? You've got a couple. Yeah, I've got a couple kids. Um, most of my kids, are, you know, they like my music. They're into it. Uh, my older kids, you know, who are teenagers, 17, um, you know, ranging from 17 to 23 at this point. Um, yeah, you know, they love my music. I think they like it fine, but um, they're into, I, th- I wouldn't say they're into my music. I think they appreciate it. But what draws young people into music, what drew me into hip hop was that it was, uh, you know, spoken in a language that, you know, people who were 30, 40, 50 years old didn't understand. So that's the whole point. It's about be- us being able to communicate, you know, with one another, um, you know, in, in, in an authentic way. So, uh, yeah, I, do, I don't understand all the drill music or all, all the hip-hop music that young people are, are creating today because it's not for me. I don't, I don't think it's my place to, to understand it, but um, I appreciate it and I respect it. And I remember when I was a young person and, you know, how, you know, people didn't understand what I was saying. If I played yeah. some of my, if I played, you know, organics, you know, at the time for someone who was, they may have liked the music, they may have appreciated the the live instrumentation of it all. Like, oh, wow, this is cool. I can get into that jazz music. But then it would always get to some point where they say, well, I don't know what the dude is talking about on there. Who does, that's you talking about? You know what I'm saying? Uh, so it's the same thing. You know, this yeah. is, uh, you know, we've we've become our parents and grandparents at this point, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, 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 I say that to say it's, it's not all for us. Your kids are living a def- very different life than, than you uh, lived. Um, as a young person in Philadelphia, and that's a positive thing. I mean, you write about it in your book. Um, do they know about your story and the different parts of you, and how how has it felt, if so, to be able to share those things with them? My kids don't really know. I don't think they know about my story as as much as they you know could or should. Um, but again, it's, I haven't really impressed it upon them. Either right, you know, um, because it's not the sort of thing that I've worn on my sleeve. They just—I uh, mean, I don't know. You know, you, I guess we, the ways in which we we protect our our kids. Um, you know, sometimes we withhold information. This, I, and I talk about this in the book about how I'm still, you know, trying to figure out information, receiving information about exactly what you know what exactly happened uh, in the, in the case of my father's murder. Right. So um, I think they're going to continue to, uh, you know, to hear sort of, again, about the pieces of the puzzle that, you know, make me. And um, I think over time they'll get into it. I think they'll appreciate the fact that, uh, yeah, I was able to tell this story, um, you know, but probably further down the line. You know, right now, my kids, they they feel oblivious to uh, to a lot of. uh, what's going on, a lot of what's happened in my life and a lot of, you know, what's happened in the world. And I think there is a, you know, there's a certain level of, of, uh, of, of 
privilege and, and, and you know associated with that with that the bliss of that ignorance you know what i mean and uh, mm-hmm. sometimes i find myself you know just wishing they had it just a a, a tougher way to go you know uh, do you feel good though that you've been able to provide them with that privilege i definitely feel good that i've been able to provide them with that privilege um you know in in, in many ways you know what i'm saying because uh i never you know as a, as a kid yeah, I didn't know what I was going to wind up doing or how long I was going to even, you know, live, <laughs> right? Uh, that's what the sad truth. Lots of us didn't think. We we couldn't see ourselves making it past 25 or 30 just because we didn't know that many people who had. You know, and then the people, you know, it was almost as if a generation uh, had been skipped because I knew people who were my grandparents' age, and I, I had— friends and classmates who were my age but you know the drug epidemic in the 80s took a whole generation of people out of here so it was like you know oh will you see yourself at 30 and i would say who who's 30 who made i don't Mm -hmm. know who's who made it to 30 you know what i mean Tariq trotter thank you so much for this conversation oh no thank you ty this has been a great conversation and um yeah i'm excited I, i can't wait to hear this Tariq Trotter, a.k.a. Black Thought, on his new book, The Upcycled Self, a memoir on the art of becoming who we are. Knocked up nine months ago, and what she finna have, she don't know. She want neo soul, cause him hop is old. She don't want no rock and roll. She want platinum or ice and gold. She want a whole lot of something to fold. If you were obstacles, you just drop your cold. Cause one monkey don't stop the show, little Mary's bad. In these streets, she done ran, ever since when the heat began, I told her, Coming up, critic Nick Kwa takes a look back at the year in podcasts. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This is Fresh Air. Critic Nick Kwa is going to take a look back at the year in podcasts. He talks about the challenging year the industry has had and highlights three shows from this year that he says are among the best. 2023 was tough for the podcast world. Like the rest of the media business, it was adversely impacted by the uncertain economic picture that kicked off the year, and the downturn brought severe consequences. There were layoffs, retrenchment, and cancellations including of some beloved shows. Podcasting today confronts a somewhat uncertain future. But some things remain the same. 
Listeners want more podcasts, and talented people want to make more podcasts. So the only question is how to realize an industry that effectively takes advantage of both things. For now, though, it's time to celebrate a number of fantastic podcasts that came out this year, despite how hard it's been. One great example, which I'm pretty sure will be around for quite some time, is a relatively new independent podcast called If Books Could Kill. Hosted by Michael Hobbs and Peter Shamshiri, this show is perhaps best described as really long-form media criticism. The project sees the duo, one a journalist, one a former lawyer, critically digging into popular bestsellers that have, for better or worse, influenced mainstream wisdom, despite harboring ideas that deserve more scrutiny. Like, for example, the productivity bestseller known as the 4-Hour Workweek. So yes, many people do choose unhappiness over instability. I agree with that. But that's because the risks of instability for many people are extremely high. Yeah. How many fake gurus are, are there out there advising people to like leave the rat race and pursue whatever makes you happy, right? Move to Costa Rica and give surfing lessons, right? Yeah. Now, Ferris is giving that same advice, but... Without the trade-off where, like, you abandon your dream of material wealth. Hobbs and Shamshiri are often cutting, and their targets are expansive. The past year has seen them tackle anything from Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers to self-improvement tomes like Atomic Habits and Rich Dad Poor Dad. At the heart of the duo's enterprise is a simple animating spirit. In an era when doing your own research can often mean selective ignorance, they model for what actually happens when one does the research in an intellectually vigorous and honest way. Another outstanding podcast is You Didn't See Nothing, led by the artist and writer Johannes Lacour. The series is part investigative journalism, part memoir, and not unlike If Books Could Kill, it's also, in part, an effort to interrogate established narratives. The event that kicks off the story is a hate crime that took place in Chicago's South Side in 1997, when a black boy, Leonard Clark, was beaten into a coma by a group of older white teens simply for being in the wrong place. At the time, LaCour, who lived in the neighborhood, started working with a local paper to investigate the incident. But he would grow disillusioned when the attack was ultimately transformed, with the cooperation of black leaders and the attacker's family, into a kind of racial reconciliation fairy tale. That didn't sit well with LaCour, who returns to the story decades later to process what happened. You Didn't See Nothing can be a bracing listen, but it's also thoroughly a joy to take in due to the strength of LaCour's writing and hosting. From as early as I can remember, I've always had a foot in a couple different worlds. I grew up in Chicago, a neighborhood called Hyde Park. It's in the middle of the South Side, but it's different. Almost like a suburb in the inner city. Like gang-banging meets Ivy League-ish academia. It's something else. Often surprising and always compelling, You Didn't See Nothing is unmissable. Unmissable also describes my pick for the best podcast of the year, The Retrievals. Though the subject matter can be prohibitively challenging. Led by Susan Burton, a veteran producer at This American Life, the series explores a medical horror that took place at the Yale Fertility Center a few years ago, when a nurse was found to have routinely swapped out painkilling solution with saline. This meant that many women who underwent egg retrievals at the clinic were left to face excruciating pain, 
but when they tried to draw attention to what they were going through, they were often ignored. Under the spotlight in retrievals is a prominent and persistent inequity, the systematic dismissal of women's pain. Burton traces the story through his discovery to the conclusion of the nurse's trial, but along the way, she maintains a strong emphasis on the patient's collective experience. Outcomes of fertility treatment are typically measured by the numbers. The CDC collects data. You can go online and look up a clinic and find out what percentage of egg retrievals result in live births. But the outcomes here can't be expressed by existing options on a drop-down menu. Some of these outcomes are not concrete. And just like the initial experience of pain, some of the outcomes are questioned. Really, what are their damages? One fertility doctor, someone not from Yale, said to me about the patients in the lawsuit. What are the harms done? What are the redressable harms? In the hands of another team, the retrievals may well have just lingered on the procedural side of the case. But Burton is particularly interested in the thornier layers of the story. She pays close attention to how that dismissal of women's pain recognizes no class or institutional distinction and how the women themselves sometimes even dismissed their own experiences. The thorniest layer, though, is a tension that can exist between women's bodily autonomy and motherhood itself, how one gets prioritized over the other. The retrievals is riveting, and in many ways, it represents some of the heights achievable within podcasting. It might have been a rough year for the podcast world, but as long as it's capable of producing works like these, it will always stand a fighting chance. Nick Kwa is podcast critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. His end-of-the-year piece can be found at our website, freshair.npr.org. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. And for a look behind the scenes of Fresh Air, subscribe to our newsletter. This week, the Fresh Air staff is sharing even more of our favorite interviews from the year. Check it out and subscribe at whyy.org slash freshair. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorak, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Challoner directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Don't get caught without emergency medical coverage on an international trip. Learn how Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your trip from the unexpected at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. 
what does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.